You are listening to Forward, a podcast of island readers and writers. This is your host, Taylor Mace. I am honored to be joined here today by author Abdi Noor Ifton. He is a Somali immigrant living in uh, southern Maine, and he is the author of Call Me American. Initially, um, he wrote a memoir geared towards adults, and then recently this summer published Call Me American, a version for young adults that island readers and writers will be using this fall in a program with the Mount Desert Island Regional School System and their seventh graders. All seventh graders will be reading the book and have the opportunity to do some virtual discussion with Abdi. And um, as the subtitle of the book says, it is a an extraordinary story. Um, and it is, is definitely that. Um, and so thank you, Abdi, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Abdi, could you tell our listeners um, you know, I, I want everyone to read your incredible book, but just kind of a short, um, just synopsis of, of your book and, and how you arrived in the United States. Sure. Um, my, my story is, is pretty much the story of every other refugee and immigrant, you know, who has, um, lived through, um, a life of, uh, uh, complications and difficulties and my um, my story begins uh, earlier when the war begins at age five and that we have uh, lost almost everything that we owned uh, my, my dad had a great job he was playing uh, for the national basketball team and he was making pretty good money until that one Sunday, early 1991, when the war erupted. And within one day, we lost everything that we had, uh, our house, uh, our belongings, um, my mother's jewelry, money, food, and all of that. And then anything after that, it was just nothing but smell of blood. You know, and uh, smell of the gunpowder. Um, and my eyes had seen things that a child would, you know, would, would, is not, you know, um, supposed to see, uh, you know, at the age of five, you know, that moment when, and for, for example, my dad goes on his knees and a young teenager has his gun point on his forehead, you know, just threatening that it's gonna spray bullets on my father. Or that moment when my mom has tears in her eyes and is praying for all of us to, you know, die together. Um, or the other moment when my mom gives birth to my youngest sister and my young sister can't have milk um, from my mother and we have uh, buried her with our own hands. So it's just a story of, of struggle and, you know, uh, sort of going through hell. Uh, but I think the moment I decided to put together my memoir basically was that it, it's destruction and blood and all of that it's just um 
um, story of human, you know, to humanize mm -hmm. the stories of uh, my mother who stood up for her kids and that she would never eat before, you know, before we ate. Uh, that she would never sleep before we slept, you know, that, that she always put her life in front of us, um, that she said, you know, she was committed to, um, to be the one who goes first before, you know, before we all die. And then, you know, the conversations that we had as homeless family who lived on the streets, my mom would say, you know, the chance of survival is narrow. And I don't think we're going to make it. And if we make it, this is going to be one of the luckiest days of our life. And so imagine as a kid hearing those words coming from your own mother, that your, your life is between life and death, you know. And uh, so I remember those conversations. But I also, you know, thought as long as I survive, as long as I breathe, I just want to make the world a better place but I also want to be part of the world that we live in so in this case I took up opportunities that were available to me um, in, in, in a world that was struggling um, in itself American Hollywood movies came up to my neighborhood and so I became a moviegoer um, someone who's excessively go into movies because I enjoy the, the action and I enjoy the language. It became that sort of like motivation that gives me what I really wanted to, to see and hear. And most importantly, you know, dream about a life that is like out there other than the, the um, you know, uh, the, the, um, the, 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 the desperation you know, the hopelessness that existed at the time. So that gave me a, you know, sort of a window to really see a world that I wanted to think about. And then thinking about that world had given me hope. And that hope, you know, has, um, has become the, 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 uh, the, 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 um, the wheels that drove me to, to where I wanted to be. In the book, I talk about the challenge that I had faced, nothing ever came easy to me. You know, it was either a matter of luck or resilience and perseverance. And there were moments when, you know, I ended up being uh, in a crowd of young, young generation where an, an Islamist imam and was teaching us how to shoot, you know, and sort of like avoiding that part of, you know, uh, uh, world was, was, uh, was the suicide. I mean, mm. if you skip them, they can come find you and then, you know, there's a death sentence. And also the greatest risk that I took, I think, my my existence uh, as a teenager and as a young man was that I became a journalist, someone who recorded his stories on an audio diary and shipped those stories or emailed those stories out to the to the radios, including the American public media, and it's been put on air, and my voice was right there, and you know, discussing you know, the uh, um, the family uh, struggle and the individual freedoms that I have I have uh, lost because of the war, and 
luckily that had opened up another door where American audience had reached out and then we became a team and they were able to sort of like technically bail me out, um, you know, raise some funds, got on a flight, came to Kenya and became a refugee, officially refugee in, in March 2000, uh, 2011. So, um, I was registered as a refugee for five years, you know, until I also um, got my luckiest day, which is, you know, apply and, and win the American visa lottery, um, which, uh, you know, allows 15 million people each year to apply to the program and only, um, you know, 50,000 uh, applicants are selected and then probably half of those selectees would end up coming to the United States and I was part of those 50,000 and um, and then you know I there was a bureaucracy and you know my name my nationality my faith uh, being refugee and being a young man all that had become sort of like an obstacle where uh, 12 different agencies within the United States government had to sort of like deal with my name and search through it and look around if I was part of the terrorism, you know, and all of that. And it had somehow really become a huge problem to come over it because I, you know, partially my visa was denied. And um, the thing about the lottery program is that it expires within one year. So if I didn't make it, you know, um, within that one year, if I didn't do everything that I wanted and come to the United States, my, my, you know, my whole chance would expire and that would mean not ever coming to the United States. So I had to do that and day and night, uh, pacing back and forth, doing everything that I could, you know, going on phone calls and rallying, you know, uh, funds and read, uh, you know, uh, people who had heard my story. And we've, we've, we've just been, you know, heavily involved in trying to make this happen. And, um, and then the wonderful day was, uh, was March 11, um, few hours after Michael Brown, a young African-American man, was murdered by a white police officer in Missouri. And that's the day I landed. Um, you know, what a terrible day, but um, it was also my, it was also my uh, unfortunately, you know, I mean, I understand with the Black Lives Matter just emerging and the rally was beginning, but I also landed some that same day and I was not very educated on the race issues in the United States. So I was sort of celebrating my arrival here and you know, there's a chapter of my book where I talk about coming here as, you know, as such a, um, you know, historic moment where I compare it to going to the moon, um, sort of like, you know, feeling my foot touching American um, land was, was such a, such a feeling that actually basically brought tears on my eyes um, and I couldn't really, you know, uh, you know, control the emotions. It was just so overwhelming. And, you know, looking ahead, I was so excited to have a job and be able to raise money and support my family and be able to, to become a U.S. citizen and, and invite them uh, come over here, you know, have my family join me. And I knew the journey was very long, but I was super excited and I became, quickly became a hard worker where I started working in the construction for about a year, um, you know, and raised, uh, I mean, saved some money to support my family. And now it's six years and every single month I've been sending uh, cash back to Somalia to have my family, you know, afford food and pay rent and they buy water and, you know, just have a roof over their head. I was astounded um, 
by the figure um, that you that you share in the book that more money comes into Somalia from relatives um, overseas than it does from um, foreign aid. Yes, that's right. It's um, actually the last number I put in the book was 1.4 billion. Is the amount of money that Somali diasporas, Somalis who live abroad, um, send back home. And that is basically the source of income for every single, you know, pretty much families back home. And my family has now become part of the, uh, um, it, it, I'm going to use this word, but it's kind of funny, the prosperous mm. families. And when I say prosperous, it doesn't mean they have a house or refrigerator or anything like that. They don't own any of those. They own a, they live in a locally displaced camp. So technically they are, you know, displaced. But since I can send a couple hundred dollars back to them, um, that means a lot to them. They can buy all the things that they need, clothes, water, and food. And that's it. They don't need a refrigerator. They don't need a TV. They don't need to pay taxes. It doesn't exist yet. You know, um, and... Um, so that is how Somalia is going about these days. Um, people don't have jobs. It doesn't exist. There's no functioning government that sets, you know, that has set up a system there where people can afford jobs. My sister has five kids and the oldest is 13. She doesn't have, she doesn't go to school. Um, she doesn't have any dreams or any hopes in the future. And I worry because that's the generation that I have to take care of myself as an uncle. Um, they look up to me. Um, and I have to be there for them. And uh, so it's a constant struggle. And one thing I mentioned in my memoir, chapter 16, is that it's hard to save money um, or have a savings account as a Somali refugee. I don't think that, you know, that's a strange idea. Like, why would you save money when you know that um, there's always a member of your family who needs that mm. 20 bucks extra, you know, Ten ten dollars if you can afford send it back home, and that's what we do. You know, we work and we spend it, um, and um, you know that is not anything that we can do anything about at the moment. But I think uh, as long as our families are surviving and are eating and you know and are paying rent, and that is I think uh, the the the, um, the goal for now. So the question is like, how do you handle all of that? How do you go to school? How do you you know, uh, at the same time work, you know, and how do you pay rent yourself? It's, it's, I, this is something that majority of the Americans don't understand about refugees. It's a daily struggle. Um, we're not really working and making a lot of money basically because we haven't, you know, finished college uh, for those of us who have come much later to the country, but also we have to work uh, daily um so that we can afford to have some money at the end of the month so that we can you know send it back to our family so you can understand how the quarantine and the COVID-19 has has had an impact on you know the work that people have been doing and the money that was going back to Somalia and I think you know not many people are capable of doing that these days something you said at the beginning um, of our conversation is that you know while this this is about your book is about struggles and it certainly is. And as you say, um, it's part of the 
refugee experience. But as you mentioned that you really never gave up hope. And there's one part, um, you know, that, that where it seems like you may almost have um, during that period of the, of the lottery um, waiting for that. Um, but other than that, you really just never did. And that's so um, just to, just despite all of the relentless hardships that you faced, you still had hope and you still had um, this goal in mind that you wanted to get to America. And something I um, that also struck me was that, you know, that was not a popular idea in your community going to America. How did you um, maintain that sort of goal when your, you know, your mother and um, others in your community didn't want you um, going there? What the refugees or people like myself who have lived through um, the Somali war and the refugee camp in Kenya, you know, the, 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 the thing that's missing is the fundamental um, um, uh, things in our lives, which is safety and peace. Um, as a child, it was, you know, I found myself um, in an argument with my own mother just because she thought that I was dreaming of something that was not possible. Um, America was such a distant place and not many people have really dreamed about. Um, even if you do, it's not something that you can, you know, you can make it happen. So my mother was right in her own, you know, explanation that she wanted me to, to turn to the Islamic teaching and then become um, a respected local um, religious leader. That was her dream. However, that was not my dream. And I think that is where we started to, you know, to have this uh, dispute or, you know, things that we couldn't come together um, halfway because I wasn't really interested in following the, um, this, the same um, uh, path that my own madrasa teacher has followed, which is just to, you know, gather kids around and teach them the Quran and torture them. And mm -hmm. that, that was not something I was open to. So I wanted to, um, to start something better, so to, to get into music, because I think um, anybody out there, if you really open yourself up to music, um, you will love it. And so I, I you know, become a storyteller and thanks to my young, you know, childhood friends who stood by my shoulder and said, you're a great storyteller and we believe in you and you're just amazing and you have memorized this English man, you're, we're with you. So as long as they have been on my side, I really did not want to, to be discouraged by the elderly um, who are trying to uh, promote the culture, promote the norms, you know, and not have any other outside influence into our culture, which in this case, movies have been seen as an outside thing, um, not anything related to Somalis, because movies had shown women and women have, you know, have their hair uncovered and you know, a woman dancing and things like that. It was not really normal within the Somali culture. And, and I understand where my mom was coming from. I understand where the, the local elders were coming from. But the thing is, um, we, I think I saw the world as one place where if you dream about America, that you can become American. 
Um, if you d dream about Europe, that you can become European. It's just a matter of believing in one thing um, and then sort of accepting it that way. And that's the way I saw it. Um, uh, there were moments that I thought, this is not going to work. So I may really need to give up. And then I, you know, encouraged myself to not give up. Um, that giving up was not part of my family's story. My mom had not given up on us when she had been going through the wars. She didn't give up on our dead sister when she was carrying it in her stomach. She never gave up. My dad would not give up. So why would I give up on something that I believed in? And, you know, so as I grew up and, and the moment that I realized I can communicate in English, I can write in English, and that was uh, quite a motivation that I basically realized this is wonderful. You know, I am capable of doing something. And if I have come this far, I'm not going to give up. And that was the moment when Al-Shabaab took over Somalia and things have really become very difficult that um, I have been threatened to, to, to death just basically by sort of earning a nickname uh, of the American. And I've been told that, you know, they're going to murder me uh, basically if I keep calling myself American. And I told them I give up. I don't want anybody to call me that. But, you know, it, 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 it took me... I think this was uh, 2000, between 2008 and 2010, I don't ever remember one hour in those two years that I ever felt safe. You know, I could have died any minute. Um, anybody could shoot you in the face. Um, anybody can find wh where you are. And so I've basically been living on the streets. And I also, for a whole year, I lived in, um, in a, you know, uh, in a ditch. Um, I used a shovel to dig out six foot, and that's where I live to hide from the shellings and the bullets. Um, and um, so it's, it's just um, sometimes I, I wake up in Maine every morning, and I never go about my day without ever thanking, you know, whoever has really made this happen. And to say, if I survive that, there's nothing that really worries me at all, and that I believe, you know, that that it's a miracle the way it happened and um, that I should be extremely thankful and grateful for being able to breathe, uh, for being able to, to walk around freely uh, on the streets here where we live in New England and be able to drive around without fear of being murdered and, and pulled out of your car. And I don't want America to ever go through the same thing that I went through. So that's why I wrote a book to just educate and inform uh, Majority of the Americans who have no idea what a civil war looks like, who have no idea what losing a sense of community looks like, what losing freedom looks like. And I don't, you know, anything can happen. As you can see, it feels like we're, we're just divided these days. And I don't think there's ever been a better time than now that most Americans need to look at our stories to actually learn and feel thankful for what we have and that we need to keep um, what we have uh, uh, and, and fight for the freedoms of every single individual. And um, so if there's a system that's against black people, we need to fight so that that system has, you know, has to stop being biased against certain people. And um, so it's a fight that's on, but I also want Americans to just go on a peaceful way to to not start a civil war, you know, because I 
this is a dead end to me. I have lived enough war um, for 29 years of my life. And now I'm trying to relax and sort of like, I live with a trauma every single night. Um, it's not gonna go away. I live with a panic attacks, but I don't want the children that are living with us today in the United States who ever go through anything like I went through and nothing like that should ever happen. After you've survived all of this horror, um, hunger, um, suicide bombers, snipers, there's relentless horrors that you went through. Um, and then you get here, and as you said, you didn't realize that there was racism here. And that the first time you sort of experienced that um, was when you were uh, working um, in Maine. Um, can you share a little bit about what, what that was like, that, that sort of realization? Racism was such a strange, you know, um, idea to me. It, I, 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 I did not know much of America's racism, the racist history where uh, black people have been enslaved in the country and the uh, civil rights movement in the 60s, you know, these this are all not anything that I've really been able to educate myself on until I landed in the U.S. and my name went straight into a box called Black or African American. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was a shock because I think to be, um, to be called African American or Black person was, was such a, an identity that I, was, that I did not agree. And in, in you know, where I come from in Somalia, we, we identify by our clan. And in, you know, in, in pretty much Africa, we don't identify as Africans. I think we identify as nationalities. You know, you are either Nigerian or Kenyan or Somali or Djibouti. That's it, right? And then from there, you can go down to the tribe, the clans and, and you know, whatnot, family and stuff like that. But America has showed my skin color so visible where I felt invisible before I came here. But... Maine is particularly a very white state. Um, if, if, if it's not number one, it's even number two. But, um, you know, the fact that, you know, that I have a dark skin and there is a history in the country where, you know, slavery has happened um, and these the, the, the stories are vivid and alive. But then most surprisingly, I think, the day that I landed, Black Lives Matter had just started because uh, police officers were shooting black people. Um, Michael Brown was just killed when I was up in the air, still coming to the United States from Africa. So it was such a, such a strange thing where I landed and I feel like I'm on the moon. I feel like I'm just the happiest man in the whole planet, right? Because I made my dream come true. I'm right here. I'm excited. But one young African-American man has also lost his life. He was taken away from this planet. So, I mean, imagine this, right? Here I come, but a young man has lost his life. He has lived in this country for as old as he was, but then just one day he got shot. And I had to analyze this, uh, you know, and, and see where I fit in it. And I realized I kind of fit in, in, in the center of this, first of all, I'm a young African, uh, African man. 
um, uh, and and um, when the police sees me, when the regular everyday Americans see me walking on the street, you know, hanging out at the coffee shop, um, driving around, they don't see me as the immigrant, as the refugee, right? They just see me as a black man who is in Maine, and um, you know. Some people wave. Well, that's great, uh, uh, but also, you know, there's also the, the other way where you could be found, you know, suspicious, right? Are you carrying drugs in the eyes of the police? Um, do you look like someone who has committed a crime? So are they going to come after you? It's been quite a struggle. I felt like it was a betrayal to my long, beautiful American dream, and. Um, and it's been, a, I think, a headache ever since. Um, and I don't know how I want to live in America, but also feel safe. I really don't know. I mean, I've been trying for the last six years. Um, and then within that, we had the election and we also had uh, not only uh, the, 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 this um, um, intense feeling of being a black person in the U.S., but also that you're an immigrant, that you're a refugee, that you're a Somali, that you're a Muslim. You know, this everything that I am has become the front page of the newspaper. Um, you can hear it on the news, you can watch it on the television. And there I was in America, in a country that I had dreamed since I was seven years old. Now, it's so scary that I don't even know if I will be safe. I don't even know if, I, if I'm going to make it um, up, up within the next few years uh, before I get arrested, before I get you know, murdered, before I get shot. And that is a valid feeling where every black man today, um, I believe every person with a dark skin, uh, particularly those young ones like myself, you know, are feeling it. I mean, am I, am I safe to jog around here? Is it okay to walk on the beach? Um, is it normal to drive around? It, you know, can I hang out in the coffee shop without, without being suspected uh, or, or looking suspicious, you know? What am I supposed to do? Do I have to apologize everywhere that I go and say, like, I'm not going to bring any problem? That's not the America that I dreamed about. It, it's not. This is, this is um, I'm sorry to say, I mean, as long as I feel free and, and happy compared to the life that I grew up with, but I, you know, I, I emotionally struggle and still psychologically struggle, and that shouldn't be, I think. I mean, how can I ever go to sleep at night knowing that? George Floyd was was just murdered because you know uh, he was a black man. And how do I wake up next day feeling it's normal? It's okay, you know, I can make it. I mean, how do I do that? I don't, I don't understand. So, um, and um, and yet I'm not an African American. So so it's like a trap, right? You just mm -hmm. come in and you fall into this trap, and that's how I feel. Initially, you wrote you have uh, call me American sort of geared geared towards adults, um, followed by the one uh, published this summer for middle schoolers, young adults. What did you change um, to make it um, geared more towards a younger audience? Um, I added a few things, uh, which is an update since my other first edition came out in 2018, uh, in the summer of 2018, this one also came out this summer. Um, I, uh, it's, you know, of course I took out a few things, but I also added a brand new introduction um, as you look into it, where I'm speaking directly with the, with the kids in the United States. Um, I um, was, uh, first of all, thinking 
the best way that I can convey my story and connect with the younger um, uh, readers in the United States. And I think this has come out of my own observation with the uh, uh, interactions that I had with, uh, with the young uh, uh, high schoolers and middle schoolers that, I, that I've been able to visit and speak with. Um, but the book, The Young Adults, is not the same size as you can imagine with, with the previous editions. So there's a lot of things that I was able to, um, to remove. And, but also the moments that you have mentioned, um, I've really debated if I wanted to, you know, take out every uh, moment that I felt was almost hard for young adults to read. But then I think, um, I, I, you know, it, it's just um, that I, I might be betraying my own story if I leave out everything, you know, that really seemed so hard for, for the young people to understand. So it's important to include the challenge that I faced when I was their age. And I wanted them, these young readers, to be able to connect with me right there as they read my story. Well, I'm five years old, we lost everything. You know, if you are a 12 year old, a 16 year old, and you're reading this story and you, you, you know, that child will, will pretty much remember um, their lives, uh, you know, if they were born in Maine or in New York or somewhere else, they know what was going on when they were five years old. They know that their family probably had a house um, or that they moved somewhere else because their family felt like, oh, we can't tolerate this heat, so we need to go a little colder area, you know, where it, it, the trees are pretty, you know, stuff like that. But that my case was completely different. You know, it was not about moving around just because we were so privileged that my mom would say, ah, oh, it's too hot. I don't want to leave here, so I need to go somewhere else. So if the child connects with that story, and if they see that I was going to a movie theater where my mom would say, it's not okay. I don't want you to go to the movies because that's completely contradictory to our culture and to the things that you were supposed to do, right? And, and I want the kids to understand that because... As you can imagine, American parents go to the movies with their kids and it's fun. You know, let's watch Star Wars. Let's go together, hold hands. And I, I think if, if a young high schooler finishes my memoir and then the next time they hold their hands with their mom and go to the movie theater, I hope they remember my story. I hope that what they're doing is, is absolutely, completely a different thing than than what I tried to do because um, I took risk. I took, you know, I put my own life on the line by doing certain things. Um, and that, you know, I don't. I wasn't going to the movies. If they read, finish the book, they would realize that no, you know, this young Abdi was not going to the movies as an entertainment. You know, he wasn't really interested in the you know the the, the the movie itself but like this is a young api who has never seen an orange juice right um he has never seen a police car he has never seen clean roads and, and streets where it had you know street lights things like that and that's it you know I, I i was so impressed with those things that never existed in my life so i hope that the way that I was able to connect with the world, that they connect with my world and that they get motivation and really uplifted by my story for them to never give up, to never feel like 
down or that they that they feel like nothing's going to happen in their life. So I hope it's going to encourage them. It's going to make them feel more uh, hopeful and that anything that they can dream of just sort of becomes so visible and, and you know, thing that they can reach out to if they actually um, uh, connect with this story. And that is why I wanted to also be able to connect with the young readers um, in our country, um, speaking from going to school to entertainment to, you know, all kinds of things. And I think, I think it's a story that is uh, readable by, by anybody. And um, so, yes, that's why I wanted to have the young adults into the, you know, shelves of the young people. Abdi Noor Ifton's memoir, Call Me American, is out now. Um, it's an um, absolutely extraordinary story, um, and I highly recommend that, that everyone read it. Um, thank you, Abdi, for joining me today and talking to me, and I look forward to um, hearing more about you and um, what, you, what you have in store for the future for us. Sure thing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. listening to Forward, a podcast of Island Readers and Writers. Get our new episodes every other Wednesday by subscribing to Forward on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. For more about Island Readers and Writers programs, visit www.islandreadersandwriters.org.